The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Welcome to The Echo Chamber. I'm Arthi Shaw, your host for today's episode that is focused on the very hot topic of influencer marketing. To speak to this, we have Kathy Planchard on the episode. She is global president of Allison and Partners, very fast-growing digital division, all told. Welcome to the show, Kathy. Thank you. All right, so today we're going to tackle a really big topic, and that is influence marketing. And part of it is at Allison Partners, you all have done some extensive research on this topic. For is it is it has this been a multi-year? Yeah, this is about four years in now. Oh well, yeah. do do you want to give us a, a quick summary? And, and of course, um, for our listeners, I will have um, links to all of the research that Kathy references in the show notes. So keep a lookout for that. But do you want to give us a, a quick summary? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we started the influencer research about four years ago, and it was really at that point we were trying to understand. Um, how people are influenced in a customer journey. So if you're thinking about buying a product or taking a specific action, how are you influenced in each stage and how does that differ based on vertical market? So for example, if I'm buying moisturizer, that's quite a different type of decision where I get input from than if I'm choosing a new doctor. Um, So the first study was really about the channels of influence and how to reach them. We then followed up with a uh, study which was more about how to identify and score influencers so that you have parameters around them. We looked at the impact of influence in CSR um, and how both brands and nonprofits could look to influencer. Uh, We did some work in Asia Pacific to specifically look at how it's different there. Um, And then most recently we came out with new new, um, IP that was much more around the metrics. So what is... What are marketers saying? What are brands saying? And, and what can we learn from both? So, and I'll, I'll reference, I'll, I'll add a link to this um, in the show notes as well, but Kathy, you and I sat down a few months ago at the mm-hmm. Innovation Summit in a room with, with a, folk, a bunch of folks on the brand side talking about this, this subject. And one word that, that, came, that came up during that conversation was, um, influence marketing is described as both the Wild West and swimming in the ocean, which, you know, because compared to traditional media relations, right, yeah. it's just, it, it's, the rules are ambiguous and inconsistent. So, are, I mean, as we are going further into this realm, I mean, are there rules that are emerging? Like, are there some guardrails that brands can use at this point? Or? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I mean, I think it's kind of a tipping point right now. So influencer marketing, you know, is, is really starting to take off. I think it was, I think it was about $6 billion that was spent in the market last year. Um, but it doesn't have the same type of guardrails, the same type of process or rigor that the other parts of the marketing mix have. Um, so there's a, there's a huge amount of, of divide, I think, between influencers and brands and expectations and reporting. So one of the things that we found out that just honestly kind of was mind-blowing for me was that a lot of time marketers don't even ask about detailed either a media kit or more detailed information about an influencer's audience. They just kind of look at the content and make a guess about who this is or based on what other brands that influencer represents um, and they don't go deeper on that and that was you know you would never buy media that way you would of course look at who you're reaching and the demographics and the the lifestyle habits and so forth but on influencer it just seems to, to go in a completely different direction and different rules apply. So I wonder if that was because initially this was considered to be experimental and the budgets were relatively small, right? And now, I think I just saw the news that um, General Mills is now spending a third of its digital budget on, on influencer marketing. And I wonder as we're starting, as we start to see the budget's allocation grow, 
Will there be more scrutiny? I mean, will, like, I mean, are you seeing more processes in place as more money spent? We're starting to see a lot more um, on the upfront, I'd say, on the identification piece. There's definitely um, some emerging platforms that are, are really trying to simplify processes of engaging, identifying, and contracting. Um, so we're seeing a lot more there. Um, I think one of the big areas that's really lacking, though, is you know, kind of an end-to-end -end solution that really creates a the same type of process that you would apply to other parts of marketing, and then specifically the metrics piece. So you know, a lot of times brands will say, "Well, was this campaign successful?" and they're not always sure what to point back to. Um, and so, certainly, if you're starting to spend a third of your budget or more. CMOs and, and the C-suite are all going to be asking, but what are we getting back in exchange for this type of spend? So what is the answer to that? <laughs> <laughs> what is the silver bullet? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's solve it right here, right now. <laughs> and then let's you and I go and sell it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so there's, there's a couple things. I mean, I think... Um, you know what we the last study particularly found that there was just a huge gap between kind of the brand and marketers and the influencers themselves and so everyone knows that they need to be able to show more value and they're struggling with what it is and part of it is you have to start with what is the actual objective of the campaign that you're doing and it could be awareness it could be sales it could be something else and so you know you have to first start there because if it's awareness then some more of the you know the vanity metrics and things like that actually make a lot more sense if it's much more about you know, driving websites or coupon redemptions or whatever it may be, there's a whole different set of metrics around it. But I think, you know, across the board, um, it's also applying just more process. So, you know, if you want a good ROI, after you start with, you know, what's the business objective I'm trying to achieve, then it becomes how do you set, you know, consistent expectations? How do you monitor for quality content? One of the other big things we found out is that a lot of times, um, A, the marketer is not optimizing the content. So if there's a campaign running, they don't test and optimize it midstream, which again, you would never think to not do that in other parts of the marketing mix. Um, and they're not asking for opinions. And so a lot of times an influencer, the only time he or she will speak up, according to our survey, was if they felt like something was really just off-brand for them personally, but they didn't feel often that they had the ability to interject with their own ideas or um, opportunities to improve it. They felt like it was more like taking an order from the brand or the marketer um, and that their input wasn't really, it was more around execution than it was around creative development. That was going to be my question is where is this reluctance coming from? Is it coming from the influencer or is it coming from the brand? Like it does, like who, who feels like they need to seed control and it sounds like it's coming from the influencer? I think the influencers uh, feel like they know that they need to show more value. They feel sometimes like it's much more transactional in nature rather than a relationship. And it's interesting, I just saw, there was an article that I just read, um, actually today, I believe, on Sephora, and they actually just put together what they're calling the Sephora Squad, which was really brilliant. They've got 24 influencers of all different types and sizes, you know, some micro and some very large ones, that are going to have a long-term relationship with them. They're going to weigh in um, not only on content, but then specifically even on their advertising and things like that, which I think is such a great mix of how to think about influencer. It's it's, you know, they have opinions, they know what works in the space, they know what works in their own feeds, um, so why not leverage and harness that? And so I think, I think it's up to the influencers to speak up more, but I also think that marketers have to understand that influencer is really relationship-based, and so it's not programmatic. It's not as easy as just making a spend and, and you know, and, and uh, with some banners or otherwise. So I think they have to understand that this is much more relationship-based and treated as such. Seems like seems like an opportunity for for public relations, right? Well, I think so. So so it seems like there's actually a huge opportunity for marketers to sort of set those rules now, right? And to and to create 
these relationships that are long-term, yeah. that aren't just transactional. Um, and it sounds like, like with, the, with the support example, that more and more companies and brands are waking up to that and realizing that, hey, look, we can we can dictate a little bit more about how we want this relationship to look. Yeah, and I think long-term is key. And obviously not all relationships can be that way, but I think, you know, the Sephora example where they, they've got a group of 24 influencers and it's a long-term relationship, that's going to provide value. And, and when you think about it for from the influencer standpoint, one of the things that came up in the study was if they're paid for, you know, a handful of posts one time for a brand, it literally just starts to look like paid content, advertising content in their feed, right? Because it's one and done, and then it doesn't seem integrated with their other content and their lifestyle, and it, it just feels like an ad. And so they push back hard on, you know, we can provide more value and more creativity if we have that type of ongoing relationship. And I think a lot of brands, you know, there, there's other opportunity too. Of where else can you involve these influencers? It, it, why is it just really, re, you know, in the, the online space? Why can't you use them in newsletters, at events, at experiential, and at partner conferences and the like. So I think there's other opportunities to leverage them as well. And we should clarify, so are we talking when we're talking about influencer marketing, are we just talking about the paid relationships or is there an earned component to this as well? Yeah, there's actually, it was interesting, in fact, I think at our, at our round table a couple months back, I was really surprised at all the different types of influencer programs that everybody talked about. And there's definitely organic and earned. There's no doubt about that. Um, and that should be and always will be at the heart of public relations, you know? And so, and I think... Um, that's online and offline. I think right now a lot of people think of influencer as, um, and oftentimes they think of it as paid and they think of it as social content. And I think there's such a bigger sphere than that. There's offline influencers, there's organic and paid, and then there's also kind of more like ambassador programs. So we have one client where we, have, we run an ambassador program for them, which are people that are very loyal about this product, and it's literally thousands of people um, that are sharing content about their lifestyle and how it's been impacted by this medical device and a hugely successful, more of an ambassador type of program. So I think there's a lot of different ways to look at it. So that your point about people think about it as paid and social, like, I know whenever I see stuff about influencer marketing, it's usually around Instagram and YouTube. Mm -hmm. So what role do some of these other platforms, like let's stick with social media first and then we'll okay. expand, but what role do some of these other social media platforms play around influencer marketing? Everything from, you know, Facebook, Snapchat, LinkedIn even, mm -hmm. Twitter? Yeah, yeah, there's, you know, there's no doubt, I think um, the market is moving largely and heavily towards Instagram and, and YouTube, no doubt about it, but, you know, I have, for example, one, uh, one fashion influencer that um, I follow, um, have followed for a long time on Facebook, and it's really interesting that um, she actually did a poll the other day, and, and she's kind of a, um, you know, she she's a, I think she's probably 30-ish, um, younger influencer, but very conservative, you know, modest clothes that fit a lot of different types of budgets. And it was interesting, she did a poll of her group, and I mean, she has actually created a community on Facebook, and it's probably about 50,000 women at this point that follow her. Um, and she did a poll that said, where are you guys? Are you on Instagram? Are you on Facebook? And it was shocking how many people um, preferred Facebook. It was significantly different. And so she's built up, and she's, by every, every stretch of the imagination, definitely an influencer. She has built up a community of, of people on Facebook that they know they can go and find that information there from her. And so I do think there's opportunities. And Facebook certainly is moving towards more of a focus on groups. And if you can align groups around special interest, which is what they're doing, it seems like that'll be a natural place for, for influencer to start to take off again. So, and it sounds like influencers sort of 
influencers themselves are learning about their audiences, like in this case. So is there, is there a role that brands can play in that as, you know, to co co I guess, well, collaborate with the influencer to figure out who exactly is their audience and to make sure that the, the content's effective, that they're reaching them the right, in the right way and that it's the right channel even. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. You know, I think what a lot of influencers have said to us over time is that brands are looking much more at some of the metrics of, of reach and followers and so forth and, and almost formulaic. And, and they feel like a lot of the value that they provide is actually in the comments and the engagement. And, and a lot of times that's really hard. It's, it's quite opaque for the marketer because they would literally have to go through you know, thousands of comments and interactions to understand it. But that's where you can really get to the meat of is did someone say something that is a valuable insight about your product or brand or feature that they, they wish that you had done. Um, so I think that the value in the comments and mining that is something that brands and marketers together should, should figure out a better system of reporting around. Um, and then secondly, when you have all of these likes and comments and all that, it's also very hard for the marketer to understand did I reach the right people? It's great that you got all this, these interactions, but were they the right types of people? And were they actually interacting about my product or were they interacting with the influencer? And those are two very different things. This fashion influencer I was talking about, a lot of people will say, you know, oh, everything you wear looks great on you. Well, that's an interaction, but it didn't really help a product. Um, and I think that there's, I think there's a lot of work to be done on really mining and finding the insights from the audience that's been reached and the comments and interactions that are happening. Do our, and this seems like a very 2007 question, but oh, no. um, <laughs> are brands comfortable with having comments on? Because um, I actually have seen some Instagram posts that have been sponsored and there, there's no, there's no comments. You can like it, mm -hmm. but there, but the comments have been disabled. So I, that made me wonder: is like, are are brands going back into this mode of like, uh. we're ceding control? We don't know if we want people having conversations about our brand. And maybe if you're a new brand that doesn't have a lot of baggage, that's fine. But if you're, say, Southwest Airlines, mm -hmm. somebody might use this as an opportunity to complain about, you know, their their delay or whatever happened to them more recently. So I mean, are, are you finding that brands are comfortable having co comments? It's a really, Enabled. It's a really uh, interesting question. I have not seen brands pushing back on, on that at this point. It, it feels like it's kind of counterintuitive to the authentic nature of what this is supposed to be, you know? And it, it's supposed to be that, that two-way conversation and dialogue, and um, that feels much more like just a push strategy where you're, you're placing an ad rather than really leveraging the power of what this could be. What about B2C versus B2B? Mm. Um, a lot of, pretty much all the examples we cited, including the General Mills investment, were all on the B2B side. And I'm wondering if you, what you're seeing on, sorry, on the B2C side, mm -hmm. and I'm wondering what you're seeing on the B2B side. Yeah, that's a good question. I think on the B2B side, there's, you know, I think this is where you get to a lot more of the offline influence also. I mean, there's still industry analysts and industry experts, um, uh, economics, um, you know, people that, that do market sizing and the like. I, I think there's still a lot of opportunity within that space. Um, you asked about channels earlier. You know, we still see a lot of value of publishing on LinkedIn also. We still see that LinkedIn, from a, a tech and a, a reaching um, B2B audiences, can still be quite powerful. Um, and so, and I think it's often, frankly, um, ignored in terms of marketers and how they think about uh, reaching their targets. So I think that there is opportunity there. Um, I think with B2B, they're also... You know, we've seen with some of our clients where they're looking to engage with influencers and then having offline events with them and one-on-one -on -one meetings. So it's, again, that mix of online and offline, which I, which I think is interesting. And you're seeing that much more on that side of the fence rather than on the B2C side. 
So this, this point about offline and offline, it makes me think about integration and where influencer marketing should sit across the marketing mix. And, and yeah, I mean, how, how, should it, how should it integrate and work with other, you know, whether it's offline events, whether it's social media, whether it's even an earned, like, traditional media strategy. Like, where does influencer marketing sit and how should it touch some of these other points? So I think, you know, we look at, obviously coming out of a communications agency, we look at influencer marketing very much as relationship-based. So we do not approach it like you would a programmatic media buy. You know, we just, it's, we see it as one-to-one -one relationships with the ability to speak to a type of audience that's, that's specialized or focusing around that influencers, you know, their followers. And so... I think the storytelling aspect is still really important. You know, if, if you get it, if you get down to it, when you follow an influencer, you're doing it because you like their content. It appeals to you, whether it's the style of the content or the types of things that he or she talks about. And so, for me, when you think about you know influencer, it really does come back to the storytelling nature. And that's why I think communications professionals are quite good at this because it's what we do all day long. Um, so I think you have to look at it as relationship based, um, and I think you have to also look at it as how you tie in the various pieces. So if you're starting a campaign, for example, how do you use influencers to make sure there's no overlap in the message in terms of if you want to talk about features or if you want to talk about benefits or whatever it may be, that you're planning it out and that it's complemented by your shared channels and your own channels. And so I was given the example earlier that a lot of the brands we talk to really just use influencer content in and of itself. They don't amplify it. They don't use those influencers in other ways, whether it be, you know, new product development or um, at their own, you know, experiential or at their own customer events. And there's so many other opportunities, I think, to tie those pieces together so that it doesn't feel so siloed. And right now, it feels like a lot of times when brands talk to us, there's the marketing and the comms piece, and then influencer is literally a separate RFP, a separate assignment, and it's not really looked at holistically. Is there a danger of banner blinders with influencer marketing where even, even an influencer's followers will just ignore and skim right past anything that's a, a paid or sponsored post and just focus on the organic content? It's really interesting. There's a lot of studies that say that people um, are still... Um, they're not turned off by influencer content. They're still seeing it as more authentic, um, and they're not seeing it as purely like a paid piece. Um, and that may just be education in the market, you know, because this is relatively new. I do think um, it has to be the right mix for the influencer. And so, we look at when we look at identification of influencers, we actually um, we have a, a methodology where we rank and, and score them um, based on some IP. But one of the things that we look at is how much of their content is original and organic and how much is paid. Because there has to be, there has to be a blend. If you feel like all you're doing all day long is getting, someone is hawking products at you, you're gonna, you're gonna over time just skim right past it, you know? And, and I think that, I think your banner blinder um, analogy is right on. I think it's, it's really incumbent on the influencers to make sure that they've got a good, mix of paid and, and authentic and organic content and I also think that they've got to be super careful about working with brands that are truly a reflection of their own passions and lifestyle choices versus just something that's going to make some additional revenue for them. So that leads me to my next question, my next question about, you know, is there an issue with fake followers um, and how do you, mm -hmm. you know, how do you counsel brands in terms of really figuring out whether an influencer's followers are legitimate and whether um, 
you know, or is there is is, is this an issue? Like, I mean, did they pay for a bunch of followers yeah. to be able to? Yeah, it's a it's an ongoing uh, headache, I think, for the platforms, um, and it, it's hard for the for the marketers to understand as well. You know, Instagram did try to do kind of a, a purge of fake followers, and, and we're still trying to kind of see the the outcomes of that. Um, some of the technology platforms are trying now to do an assessment. So one of the things that you can do with fake followers is, is and again, this takes more homework on the side of the, the agency or the brand, but you have to kind of deeper dive into the comments. And if you see, you know, emojis or single word responses like cute and things like that, a lot of times those can be signs of um, fake followers. But some of the platforms themselves are now starting to try to, to, to find ways to embed into their systems um, an assessment of fake followers. So one of the platforms, um, and they are a client, shall I say, um, Tagger, actually just put together and just released a feature that um, looks at an assessment of what percent of followers they think are, are fake for an influencer. So I think, and I'm hopeful, that technology itself will start to play a better role there. And then what about, um, so the term that I often hear is, um, is, is everyone's trying to be the money ball of influencers, right? Like they want to get the, the more cost-effective influencers early on, or there's an emphasis on you know quality over quantity of followers, and, and sometimes that can mean um, that can, that can be more cost-effective as well. So, how, how much are you seeing brands just saying, "All right, you know, I don't want the big splashy, I don't want to make a big splashy investment, but you know, let, let's identify like tomorrow's influencers, let's mm -hmm. let's get them early." Um, how much are you seeing that versus you know the yeah, established? It's hard. I mean, there's there's influencers popping up every day in every vertical, you know, and in, in in every geography and, and everything else. And so I think, you know, I think one of the the brands that really did a good job of this as an example um, is there's a subscription box. I don't know if you've ever heard of FabFitFun. Do you know that by chance? Mm -hmm. So it's 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 like a birch box. It's a, it's a subscription service, and they use um, micro influencers. Um, to basically do unboxings and to show the products and in the beginning it was and basically they um, they give the merchandise to those influencers and then over time if they've created a certain amount of web traffic or sales or whatever then they start to actually pay on it and it's interesting because um, what it's done from an awareness perspective is just outstanding and so and it's also uh, it seems to be taking over my social feeds right now so um, there's a lot of influencers working on this but they, they literally deal at any given point within the thousands of influencers that mm. they work with um, and so they've taken a, a very different approach so I think you know and, and it's been very successful for them um, you know this for example they've got micro influencers and large-scale influencers mm -hmm. and so I think it is a mix, um, and a lot of it is what's right for the brand. Yeah. You know, the, some of the micro influencers have much more niche audiences, but audiences that are much more aligned with your brand and, and what you're trying to achieve, and they're more highly engaged. And mm -hmm. so, we typically do some type of mix, um, and uh, have seen the best results with that. So that's another question I have: is Are there certain sectors where the audience is much more receptive and engaged with um, with influencers than others? You know, like mm -hmm. anecdotally, it seems like beauty, it beauty seems to be sure. huge. Yeah. I've heard pets, like, you know, like, right, like BarkBox and things yeah. like that. Like, are there certain areas where it's just, it's so obvious that influencer marketing is the way to go? And are there some sectors where it's a little more untested and it's not clear what the value is? Yeah, I think, I mean, we certainly see it all over the place with, with beauty, with fashion and retail. Um, those are two that really stick out. Um, we see it a lot with travel. Um, huge on that. So some of the, I mean, I, I think some of it is some of the more visual type of content, right? So travel is very visual, beauty, fashion, um, wellness products and the like. Um, 
we see a lot there. I'm trying to think of food and beverage. Certainly, we see a lot there also. Um, and then, kind of issues based. So, if there's you know products that are um, uh, more sustainable or or vertically based, so really appeal to moms or a certain segment, um, that's that's where we're seeing a lot of it. Um, less so, I'd say, on some of the you know the healthcare pieces. That's a little bit harder to do. Um, you know, and obviously some of the professional services, financial services, all that, it's a little bit more difficult to do as well. Is influencer marketing dominated by women? Or is there a pretty healthy mix? That is an excellent question. You might have stumped me on that one. <laughs> Let me, I'm just trying to scroll, scroll through and think. You know, because uh, I was thinking, when, when, you, when you mentioned moms, I was thinking about how many posts I see that are targeted, that are, that are, that, I mean, it kind of came from yeah. the whole mommy bloggers, right? Yeah. That was like the, that was the thing. The proto, yeah. right? Yeah. And, um, and then I thought about, and then I thought about men and I thought like, are men targeted in the same way by influencers? Like, are there as many male influencers in their, you know, whatever sectors? I mean, if mm-hmm. it might be fashion or beauty, it might be something else. Yeah. And I, I just wondered if they're, I think, you know, I think from what we just talked about, the, the fashion and beauty and all, it's a little bit more difficult. But I know, like, for example, with a lot of our travel clients, mm-hmm. we definitely have an equal mix of, of male and female. Um, yeah, it's a very interesting question. I think some of it comes down to who's making purchase decisions for the brand, mm-hmm. you know, and who's going to appeal to them, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. So um, if it is a mom who's doing the grocery shopping, um, you know, female influencers to head of households who are making those type of decisions make a lot of sense. Um, so I think it, it kind of comes from that perspective. I don't know that I've ever seen a breakdown. That's a really interesting question. Right, no, and, and I wonder, like, you think about things like Sonos or, like, Apple, like, mm-hmm. like some of the electronics, and, or even, like, automotive, like, mm-hmm. if, there's, if there's a split there. So maybe that's something that we'll, we'll explore in a, in a, future, in a future series. Um, the other question I have, is, so speaking of the future, is looking ahead. I mean, so in our conversation a few months ago, somebody had mentioned... Um, I think her name was like Little Michaela, and she was basically a computer-generated avatar, and she had over a million followers, right? And she basically the brand—I don't even know which brand this was affiliated with, to yeah. be honest. Um, they decided to create their own influencer and build a whole narrative and story yeah. arc for for this fake person. Um, is that the future? Like, do you think that we are a few steps from just brands saying, "Why don't we just create our own personas"? Mm. I hope not. <laughs> yeah, right. And, but I wonder if there's a generational divide, right? Like, yeah. I, like, I wonder if, and I think this came up in the conversation, was this question of, is, does Gen Z, do they, do they make a distinction as mm-hmm. much between someone who's, a, who's, you know, developed and curated by a brand or, like, an actual person who's just being, you know, who has a partnership with a brand? Like, are they... It's a really interesting question. I mean, I, you know... I, at the core of influencer, it's supposed to be about you know authentic relationships, authentic dialogue, um, and you know avatars obviously are uh, the opposite of that. <laughs> avatars and, and and carefully curated in place content. Um, that said, I, I am fascinated by you know Gen Z and um, because they did grow up around influencers and YouTube stars and, and the like. So I'm very interested to see if you know if there is a banner blinder kind of phenomenon, I think it may happen with that generation because um, it's almost like they can sniff it out because they, they grew up around it, you know? So I, I think that'll be very, very interesting. But for me, it still gets down to, I'm not going to click through and make a purchase decision or change a behavior or action um, based on content that I know is um, inauthentic. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think that's still, I still think that becomes the, the litmus test for the, for the future. Yep, I mean, I think it. I think I, 
we buy from who we identify with yeah. and who we trust, right? Yeah, so, absolutely. Um, any, anything else that we haven't touched on about influencer marketing that you think is worth noting? I think it's really the metric side, and, and uh, we talked a little bit about setting the objectives up front. I think the other piece is, you know, there are, um, there are some opportunities, I think, to really increase and improve um, how we report on results on the influencer side. And so there's everything from, you know, setting more measurable, you know, links and offers, um, whether it's coupons or whatever it may be, to um, things like correlation statistics. And so correlation statistics literally looks at um, did this one thing, so for example, did this influencer program result in a lift in sales or a lift in website traffic or whatever it may be? Um, I think using some of the technology and um, some more modeling around metrics is important, and I think there's a real opportunity for brands to explore more in that area. <coughs> Excuse me. The, the the digital like the the coupons and the the codes mm -hmm. to me that seems so like that just seems like an obvious way to like track to see whether. It does, but I think um, there's also like pixel tracking that you can do mm -hmm. in content. Um, I think there's more testing and optimization that brands can be doing um, so that they're learning from past. And I also think that, frankly, the industry, you know, we talked about the wild, wild west and, and swimming in the ocean. Um, we need better benchmarks. It's very difficult to say whether a campaign was successful um, relative to other campaigns in the industry. So, you know, in direct marketing, you know what open rates are. You know what, um, you know, cold calling could result in. There's there's standard industry benchmarks. We don't have that for influencer marketing. So I think that's a, a critically important part. And that then will actually lead to an opportunity to better regulate what payments should be. Because right now, it's really... Uh, it is a little wild, wild west with payments um, in terms of what the contract, what the influencer can request, and, and what the marketer feels is is the value of that. So, who owns who owns the data then? So, if, so if Instagram, so say it's on Instagram and partner with an influencer, does the brand have to ask the influencer for metrics, or like like how does that relationship? Yeah, work? that's all part about the uh, kind of the process, and so that should be set up up front as part of the performance expectations and it should be in the contract. And so, you know, you should literally be doing a creative brief with all of the expectations. Um, what do they need to understand about the tone of the brand, the brand messaging that's important, do's and don'ts, if you will. Um, imagery, not handing someone the imagery, but at least some parameters or guidelines around. Um, all those types of things need to be sold up front and getting the audience insights and metrics should be written in every contract. Wow, this is this is such a big topic, and even in the few months since we talked about it in February to now yeah. in May, it feels like it's changed. It's changed. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> so, every day. Yeah, yeah, and 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 you know, but I will say, you know, and I think it came up in the conversation we had in February. This is coming up in pretty much every conversation I'm having, whether it's someone on the agency side or someone on the brand side is figuring out influencer marketing. So, so we will be revisiting this topic again, and I'm sure when you all have your next iteration of research, we should probably have you back on here you again. Bet. I'd be happy to. <laughs> all right. Well, great, great, great chatting with you, Kathy. Thank you so much. And that concludes another episode of the Echo Chamber. Thank you to our guest, Kathy Blanchard, and thank you to our producers, marketeers, and we will be back soon with another episode. listening to the echo chamber brought to you by the homes report and produced by the international broadcast specialist marketers 